support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics comes from our members and Mendocino Solar Service, License 536983. A solar electric system is a long-term investment that will help reduce electricity bills, increase home values, and reduce a home's carbon footprint. More information is at mendocinosolar.com. Support for Mind, Body, Health, and Politics also comes from our members and Radiant Solar Technology. Ready to help plan power systems, advise on applicable incentives, conform to current codes, and prepare for future expansion. From solar panels to high-tech battery boxes through sun, wind, and water, Radiant Solar Technology helps homes and businesses fill their renewable energy needs. Information at 485-8359 and radiantsolartech.com. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to expand consciousness, stimulate thought, enhance mental and physical health, and encourage community. If you want to call in during the program, I'll give you the number now, and then later on, I'll call for your call-ins. The number is 707-937-5103, 707-937-5103. If you want to email during the program, perhaps you don't want your voice heard on air, you can send us an email to dj at kzyx.org, dj at kzyx.org. And by the way, archives of this program can be found at mindbodyhealthpolitics.org or on the KZYX website, something called Jukebox, J-U-K-E, Box. Well, today we're going to have an interview with Julie Barton, who's written a book called Dog Medicine, How My Dog Saved Me from Myself. And uh, this, is a, uh, this is an interview that is really near and dear to my heart. Um, I've been involved with canines since uh, I was a little boy, uh, living off base with my mom and dad off uh, an Air Force base. And uh, when, uh, when officers who lived off base uh, suddenly were, were uh, transferred somewhere else and they couldn't take their canines with them, uh, we were the recipients of their canines, and I was a dog. I was, <laughs> that's funny, I was a dog. I was a little boy in dog heaven. Actually, I was a little dog myself. <laughs> and so um, I went on to, um, uh, actually, I was a pioneer in canine-assisted psychotherapy in this country. I was started out, I was given a dog by the famous uh, family therapist, uh, my dear friend and colleague, Virginia Satir. And she gave me her, her poodle, uh, Colonel, because uh, Virginia was on the road constantly lecturing and teaching people in her wonderful way. And so I got Colonel and started using him uh, back in, what was that, 1969 uh, in family therapy and uh, been using dogs in, in treatment ever since. And here we have today uh, Julie Barton bringing us a, do- a book called Dog Medicine, How My Dog Saved Me From Myself. So stay tuned uh, for this, this uh, touching 
really t emotionally touching and uh, excellent uh, book and interview with Julie Barton, Dog Medicine. But first, as is our custom, um, news and notes in psychology and medicine. You know, I'm going to take a little sidebar here and say that um, Happy New Year and a healthy New Year. And thank you for listening. Thank you for making this program possible by listening. I very much appreciate your, your joining me and, um, and sustaining the program. Uh, over the years, uh, I've tried to bring you information that would be helpful for your, for your mental and physical well-being and also for your spirit. Uh, and I've, I've tried to bring you information that maybe you wouldn't get uh, in other media. Uh, some of the programs on, um, on women's rights, on prostitution, on psychedelic medicine, uh, as well as uh, hanky-panky and politics that we're all uh, besieged with. And, um, and so I'm full of gratitude for uh, being here with you today and for your being here uh, with us today and particularly starting out the, the year, as I said, with this, with this touching book on dog medicine. Okay, out of the sidebar and back to um, news and notes. You know, a few weeks ago, I, I read to you about uh, sleep apnea and uh, that it has uh, even additional dangers uh, for women. Well, you know, more and more information is coming to us about the dangers of apnea uh, it's, it's actually called obstructive sleep apnea, or breathing pauses during sleep. Pauses, in other words, instead of a, of a regularity of in and out breath, there's a breath and a holding of the breath, um, or there's an obstruction to the breath uh, from the little piece of, uh, of material that, that hangs in the back of our throat called the uvula. And... Um, there's more and more coming out on it because of the, um, of the dangers. And it, it's, um, it's very correctable. It's not a pleasant correction. You use a CPAP machine, which is a device that pushes air uh, down your throat so that you have a steady, a steady is the key word, uh, and those two words. Uh, a steady is two word for uh, the motion of the air going in to your lungs, very important. The latest study indicates that the percentage of CPAP, that's the device, users with signs of moderate to severe depression, which came from not getting enough oxygen, fell 74%. Okay, you get it? If, in other words, people who, who have apnea, and there may be many more of us than we know, are prone to depression because they're depressed from not getting oxygen. It's not a psychological depression from grief or some kind of trauma. It's, it's a physiological depression. 74% improvement with the CPAP. So we really owe it to ourselves to be tested. And if you're living with someone who's a snorer, it's not just a cute little thing, oh, you snore. It could be a very serious thing. So that's why I'm spending so much time on it. And I hope you take heed and, uh, and maybe get yourself uh, tested, uh, which is what I'm going to do. Uh, Mike is uh, handing me something here. Okay. Um, what is this you're handing me, Michael? 
something about, um, yeah, I already read this uh, from Radiant Solar Technology. Mike's handing me something about the underwriting, but I, I read the radiantsolartech.com. Okay, if there's another one, I'll get to it. Um, on to more. I've also been recently talking to you about dietary supplements. Dietary supplements are being sold to us big time in this country. And as I've read in the past, and I'm going to tell you again today, there really isn't a lot of good evidence that supports the use of these dietary supplements, be they vitamins, minerals, and other uh, nutrients, or whether they're herbal, or whether they're complementary. Uh, or whether they're marketed for weight loss or energy boosting. Um, in fact, we had 23,000 visits to emergency rooms and more than 2,000 hospitalizations every year, according to the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine. Um, so, folks, there's a marketing that's going on, and we're, we're all susceptible to it. Keep your eyes open on these dietary supplements. Uh, there's no evidence, again, that they're doing any good, and there's evidence that they're sending 23,000 people a year to emergency rooms. They cause cardiac symptoms, palpitations, chest pain, fast heartbeat, arrhythmia. Perhaps enough said for now. Connected to that is a movement in this country called detox. Detox. What is a detox? It means some kind of a regimen or a product or a procedure that's supposed to cleanse your body and give it a radical reboot. Okay, we all heard about them. They range from things like uh, herbal supplements and tonic, a one-day fast, uh, coffee enemas, colonic cleanings. There's even one from William Sonoma called the five-day juice cleanse that they sell for $330, plus shipping and handling, of course. And they, they, they use such names as the Big Detox and the Master Detox. In fact, there's one that's known as the Master Cleanse, which calls for consuming nothing but warm salt water, laxative tea, and a liquid concoction of lemon juice, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper for 10 days. Folks, the difficulty is that as much as many of us have been looking for alternatives to Western medicine, and we've been looking for 40 years because we want to not necessarily have alternatives, as the words used, in other words, some other system instead of, but for some of us, it's let's add to the Western system. What else is out there from China, uh, from, from Europe? from South America, what else is out there in addition to what we call Western medicine or Western civilized medicine? However, in our search for alternatives, naturally we're prone to doing things and trying things that, if you believe in science, are worthless, literally worthless. They're just basic, what you called a hundred years ago, snake oil. And colonic irrigation is an example of it. Colonic, these high colonics, can not only cause diarrhea, dehydration, and impaired bowel function, but these high colonics, according to science again, if you believe in science, also cause serious complications such as electrolyte imbalances, blood infections, that's septicemia, that's caused by contaminated equipment, 
even a perforation of the intestinal wall, severe hemorrhage, hemorrhage, and even heart failure. So, you know, it might sound like a good idea to have water put up your colon and clean everything out because that stuff is so, quote, filthy or dirty, but it really isn't. It's just stuff that has a lot of microorganisms in it and not dangerous to our system. And our system is excellent at cleaning itself out. What our system really needs for cleaning itself out is a balanced diet, plenty of water, and exercise to keep things moving. Then the liver and the kidneys are wonderful filters, and they do their job, and we don't have to pay money. 330 bucks. Well, I'm getting a signal here from Mike, and he's saying cut off on the news and notes because you know, we're running out of time already because we listen to the president for a while. So that'll be the end of news and notes for now, folks. And on to our interview with Julie Barton, who has been so patient, waiting instead of five minutes. She's now waiting 35 minutes. Julie Barton holds a BA from Kenyon College, and Master's in Fine Arts in Writing from Vermont College of Fine Arts, and another MA in Women's Studies from Southern Connecticut State University. Julie lives in Northern California with her husband, two daughters, and a small menagerie, which we're going to hear about. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Julie. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Where do we begin? Where do we begin with your wonderful story? Well... With your wonderful story, I was going to add more to it, but it's basically a wonderful story. Where would you like to begin? Um, well, you know, we could tell listeners a little bit about the story, just so they can kind of get an idea where we're, where we're coming from. Um, so the book starts when I was 22, um, living in New York, and I had graduated from college and in Ohio, and grown up in Ohio, and I always lived in Ohio, and I wanted to be a big city woman. I didn't want to be a country kid, so I moved to the city, and things did not work out very well, um, and that combined with, um, you know, a pretty difficult situation when I was growing up left me collapsing on the kitchen floor one day and crying for two days and sleeping. And I, I read your book, Julie, and, and I'm thinking, I wonder how many young people graduate from college, go to New York, try to rent an apartment, do rent one, don't have money as you didn't for even furniture. Mm-hmm. Who knows what the heat was in the place. And there you are, and in your book, you describe really going into a very serious depression. Yeah, yeah. It was harrowing. I didn't know what was happening. This was 1996, and depression as a mental illness was not in the public lexicon yet. Um, I didn't know what was happening. I just thought, I'm weak and stupid and can't even handle getting up. Um, But I knew, you know, that day when I just sort of lost it, um, I knew I needed help. And so I called my mom. And my mom said, I'm getting in the car right now. I'll be there in nine hours. Oh, what a mom. I know, the best. What a mom. Um, I'll be there in nine hours. Yeah. (laughs) But before we get to mom's trip, driving from from Ohio, uh, I know that trip quite well, by the way, because I went to the University of Illinois and my folks were in New York City. So Ah. I, I I know that drive. 
Before we get to Mom's epic drive, tell us about what that depression, about a 22-year-old graduates from college in Manhattan, what, what were the feelings, what are the thoughts in your head of depression? Well, uh, they were sudden thoughts on a very regular basis of ways I could kill myself. You know, jump onto the third rail, jump in front of that bus, jump in front of that cab. And then that coupled with a really constant and nagging voice in my head, not a voice, but thoughts, just thoughts thinking, you're so stupid. Why did you do that that way? Oh, he's looking at you because you're so ugly or, or, you know, don't walk on that. Why did you do that? You know, just constant self-ridicule that I didn't notice. I didn't know that that was was what I was doing um, until I started to work on what was happening with me. But it was killing me. It was really killing me. And um, Would you say that a lot of the thoughts, as you just quoted some of them, were a lot of the thoughts questions? Why are you doing this? What's wrong with you? Things like that? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say there were, there were probably an equal amount of questions and just thoughts in my head that, were, that I thought were facts, that were truths. Like, you're ugly. Nobody likes you. Um, Negative declaratory and then the accusatory why question. Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay, so you're going through this, Julie, and you're, you're hearing these thoughts in your head, what we just called negative, you're no good, you're bad, you're ugly, and then questions, why are you doing that? Then do you, is there a part of you at the same time that's witnessing that's go, this, that this is going on and saying, hey, what's going on with me? I'm driving myself crazy. Was that going on as well? It wasn't yet. I mean, I have, I have journals where I would write, and I was trying just so hard to exist, and it was getting harder and harder every day. And I didn't, I didn't have this what is going on with me thought because that was too scary. It was too scary for me to contemplate, like, maybe there really is something wrong. I was just trying to function. Um, and I did not have any mindfulness until the day where I collapsed on the floor and I thought, well, okay, this is, this is bad enough that I know this isn't normal and I need to figure out what's happening and I need to go home. Um, but no, I was really, I was, I was not aware. I, I, I just sort of thought that this is just how life is. And um, I was always really hard on myself to the point where it, beca- it made me, it made me mean. It made me um, you know, uncomfortable in my own skin and not a good friend and just challenging, I think, you know, but I would work really, really hard to not be those things. But it's impossible when your mind is, is destroying you. You said something that I heard underlined in red, and that is that you were believing that all this negativity that was going on in your mind was just the way it is. Yeah. Like this is this is normal. This is how pe- how it is in life. You gotta you have all this terrible stuff going on in your head, yeah. and and you try to put one foot forward after the other and still make it to work and still buy food and so on. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I would have said this is just how life is, and then for me to acknowledge there's all this terrible stuff going on in my head would have forced me to acknowledge that it was there. Do you know what I mean? Like I didn't even think about it as there. I just thought that was the way things are. 
Um, and I got uh, a therapist you read about in the book who just said, just just take a, for one day, let's do an exercise where you just sort of notice what you're thinking. And it was like, well, okay, now I get it. Because <laughs> even just walking out her office, I was self-blaming, I was negative, I was hard on myself, I had catastrophic thoughts. Um, and I went, okay, well, there we go. Now I know why I got to that point where I was collapsing on the floor. But that was, that took a, you know, that was a few months after I got home. So that, that was the first time you began to witness what it was that your mind was doing. Yes. This is what I mean when I tell people that the mind wants to be the boss. The, the mind forgets. It doesn't even forget. It doesn't even want to know that the mind is really our tool that we get to direct, but it wants to direct us and take over. Absolutely. And that, Absolutely. that's what was going on with you. Your mind at that point had taken over control of you. Yeah, and, and it was a revelation for me when I realized I didn't have to do that or that just noticing it was a form of awakening. I didn't have to, like, didn't have to notice it and think, oh, don't think that. I just had to go, oh, that's interesting, and just get curious about it and think, wow, I wonder why. Is that true? No, actually, it's probably not true. And that was, that was the first step in healing. I, I, that revelation, I think, is one of the most important parts of your book mm. because you did go into what, what reads like when I read it, you know, it, it reads like you, that you went into, if not a clinical depression, very close to it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when you got to witness what your mind was going through, you then were able to have more control over it rather than it having control over you. And I think this is a very important thing for all listeners to know. Mm -hmm. It really is that, that, you know, in some ways, uh, uh, maybe the computer analogy some people don't like, but in some ways the, the mind is like a computer, but it's a tool for us. It's not the boss, as I say over and over again. It's not the boss. And you started to learn that. Okay, your mom drives you. She comes, makes this epic drive. She picks you up, packs up everything, brings you back to Ohio, and then please bring us into the dog. Yeah, well, so I get home, and I'm sinking further and further, and I was pretty mute. I was on the couch for most of the day. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I was mean, um, and uh, after a few weeks after being home, well, it's actually a month or two after being home, um, I said one hopeful thing after I'd gotten the diagnosis of, of clinical depression, I had I said to my mom, you know what I think might help me? And I said, a puppy. And much, again, to my mom's credit, she said, okay, let's get you a puppy. And we looked in the classifieds in the newspaper, and we went out and um, went to see one litter, and I didn't really feel a connection with any. It was all golden retrievers I was looking for, and didn't feel a connection with any there, and went to the next place, which is a family farm in a town called Alexandria, Ohio, and got out of the car, and I was standing there next to this big white farmhouse and all these trees and a big, all these dogs running free, and this little puppy walked up to me, sat down at my feet, and looked up at me as if to say, there you are. I've been waiting for you. Let's go. Uh -huh. It was It was like 
love at first sight. It was a miracle. Um, and I was so sure. I hadn't been sure of anything in so long. I was so sure. And then, of course, I was terrified because I thought, what on earth am I doing getting a puppy when I'm, I can hardly take care of myself? But it proved to give me um, a sense of purpose having him. You know, he fell asleep in my lap on the way home, and the fact that he trusted me to care for him made me think, I, I can do this. I am capable of taking such good care of this animal. And when he trusted me, I trusted him, and it was a circular thing. And then, you know, I started to train him. I worked really hard to get him so that he would be trained and understand me, and I would understand him. And and then the biggest miracle was the day that I was sitting at home after I'd had him for a few days, and I started to feel down again, like that, you know, that initial rush of the excitement of getting a new puppy um, had kind of worn off, and um, I started to have really negative thoughts. I started to give in to them, um, or believe them, actually, and I sat down on my couch, and I just thought, okay, this is, a dog can't save me, nothing's going to help me, I'm hopeless, and I was sitting there with my head and my face in my hands, and then I felt warmth on my toes. And Bunker, I'd named him Bunker Hill, Bunker had walked over to me and sat down on my feet and leaned against my shins and looked up at me, like twisted his little head around and looked up at me like, did that help? You know, he seemed to say like, are you better? Does that help? And it was, it was so clear to me that he sensed my sorrow and that he just didn't want me to be alone with it. And that in itself was the biggest miracle I'd ever known. And I said, all right, this may be all in my head, but I'm going to believe it <laughs> because this is beautiful and it's going to save my life. That, that's, a, that's a very touching story. Could you feel as that happened the depression lift? No, I mean, I, 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 get, I mean, maybe that you know the depression itself is like a huge lead blanket, and it doesn't really lift. You know, it has to sort of dissipate slowly, like disintegrate. But I did feel like maybe there was a hole in the blanket, if that's a decent metaphor. That's like, wonderful. <laughs> like maybe I could see a little bit of light, um, and I knew that with him by my side, you know, sensing me and seeing me. Um, I could, I could make it out. I really could, and and I did, you know. And but it wasn't as if, you know, suddenly I got this dog and the depression went away. It wasn't that at all. It was, this is something I'm going to be fighting in my life, and I have fought it my whole life. Um, and with him by my side, I can, I can do it. Um, and so that felt like a miracle. I'd never felt that, and I knew he wouldn't leave me. I knew he wouldn't betray me. I knew his love was unconditional and would always be there. And that's what a depressed person needs. And that's a really hard thing for a human to give us, I believe. And it's not at all hard for an animal to give it. And it turns into this incredible relationship where, you know, I knew from a shift of his ear what he was feeling. And he was the same with me. That's interesting that you say that. Uh, I knew from a shift of his ear because... Uh, there's a wonderful book called The Inside of a Dog by uh, Alexandria Horowitz. She's a professor at uh, Columbia University. And um, 
she talks about how uh, she used to take her dog to uh, Central Park, and uh, one day she started uh, taking videos of the dog playing with other dogs. And uh, so she would watch the videos at home, just uh, you know, kidding around, having some fun. And then one day, she just for some reason decided to play the videos in slow motion. And it was then that she made a remarkable discovery, which she published, uh, which is that she could see in the slow motion how the dogs are watching visually all the motions of the other dogs and how they're taking their cues from the motion of the other dogs and how they're taking their cues from our motions and our facial expressions. And basically that's what you were picking up that you could learn even what the twitch of your dog's ear meant. You were communicating with, uh, with Bunker. Yep. And of course he was, he was constantly communicating with you. Yeah. Well, and, and the, the amazing thing is, you know, as a writer, I, I love words and I work with words, but there was, such freedom in having a relationship that had no language, no word language. We had our own language, but it didn't require, you know, me naming my emotions, me, you know, labeling what was happening for me. I just, he just knew. And we, we would jump over all of those other hoops that I had to do with actual human beings and go straight to working on healing. You know, I would pet him and I would breathe deeper. Um, I would, you know, I, I could cry if I needed to, but, you know, he would cuddle with me on the bed only if I was sad. He hated cuddling on the bed. <laughs> but if I was sad and I wanted him to do it, he would come up and he would lie with me. He would curl up into a little ball and lie right, in, you know, against my, my chest and my belly. And then as soon as I felt better, he's like, okay, phew, over with that, you know. Never came on the bed otherwise. And he just knew. We knew, we knew each other really, really well. And it was the most healing relationship of my life, which is why, you know, despite my fears, I wrote a book about it because it's the very truest thing I know. Do you think it would be uh, worthwhile for us to take a little side trip here and talk about the antecedents of depression? Do you think that would be helpful for our listeners or do you think we should just uh, pass on that and go on to more stories about your connection with the dog and your life and how you moved? Um, I'm happy to talk about antecedents to my depression because i i think listeners might be asking themselves where do these thoughts come from you're no good you're ugly why are you doing that etc yeah well you know i i think that sometimes they just come i you know but often it's a combination of a predisposition to it which i had and um environmental factors so i had a really difficult relationship with my sibling, my brother, who's older, um, and who was not a happy kid, and I was his closest punching bag slash um, place to, you know, sort of place his anger and shame and fear, and um, he was he was pretty mean to me when we were kids, and um, we didn't like each other very much, but what I knew very clearly was that he didn't like me, and I thought that that meant there was something wrong with me, um, and he would tell me so on a daily basis, and, you know, a lot of siblings fight, but there's a line, there's a, there's a, there's a demarcation between normal sibling 
arguments and trouble and, um, you know, persistent negative, you know, feedback that I was getting. And it was, it was, I didn't know that it was there. It was like the depression. I didn't really think that that was abnormal until when I was in college, a friend of mine said, I think you might want to look at how that has affected you. And I was so mad at her for suggesting that there was anything wrong with my family or my brother that I didn't talk to her for the rest of the college. I think it's Which, a, this is a very right. this is another very important uh, story in your book for listeners. Uh, we're talking about how important it is for parents to be in the know about what's going on amongst their children, because in this case, uh, Julie's brother really was abusive. And when you read the book, you'll see how abusive. There's one poignant story uh, about you that you tell Julie about how after being a you know, shy, shy girl uh, in high school, you, you get all dressed, you're invited to a party. Uh, it's actually a party for people who have bro you know, a brother and a sister or two siblings in high school at the same time. And you get invited and uh, you know what nobody knows about you because the popular kids don't know you is that you've been listening to uh, popular music and dancing in the privacy of your room for years mm -hmm. and so you go to the party it's a great story and somehow you manage to cut loose and you're just dancing away and you know all the songs and all the popular girls are just like happy with you and you're making friends and the next thing we read about in the book is how your brother just tears you apart. Yeah, it was so painful to read how he he just calls you the most terrible names in the car and puts yeah. you down. And yeah. the reason I'm telling the story is because it's a story of how we get these terrible thoughts about ourselves. We we not we're born with a tabula rosa. We're not born thinking bad things about ourselves. Absolutely. The, right? These things come in, and you're teaching us that one of the ways that we get negative thoughts about ourselves is by people feeding them to us on a regular basis, and particularly important people, and particularly a brother or a sister who tells you over and over again what a rotten person you are, you, you come to believe it. You do. You come to think that that's true. And, you know, I will never forget that moment in the car and I was the, the the overwhelming feeling I had was deep embarrassment and shame such shame and I had to you know I, I lived with that for a long time and I stopped going to parties I, I was always the designated driver because I said I was I needed to train for track and field and that was partly true but it was also fear um, and so you know I lived very very deep inside that shame for a long time and part of the reason I wrote this book was to, you know, take that veil of shame off. Because, you know, what I've gone through, you know, with the depression and with having a dog save me and, and really struggling in my, you know, early 20s, I have no shame about it now. I have no shame about how I behaved and how I got through. And, you know, so in a way, it's a, it's a triumph that, you know, when people tell their stories about how ashamed they felt and how, um, you know, difficult a moment was for them. Yes. This is a story, Dog Medicine, by Julie Barton, How My Dog Saved Me From Myself. It's a must-read. Julie, I have to cut the interview short because President Obama took a lot of our time today, but I thank you so much for being on this program, for sharing a story about how a canine, how a dog named Bunker 
helped you so much through your depression, as well as your therapist did as well, to teach you about witnessing your thoughts and not having them control you. Thank you, Julie. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you all for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYF staff and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike DeLaura. Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth working hard for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.